Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you on the Thursday evening, where we continue special topic Thursday, right, an evening that is devoted to your questions, an evening that is tailored to your questions. And this evening, we are going to take up the question, what does the word gospel actually mean? And I love that question, because to ask that question, what does the word gospel actually mean, really will have us getting into the heart of uh, sacred scripture, right? Into the heart of the gospel message. But before I get into that, I did just want to warmly welcome all of you. If you are listening to this radio station, to this radio program for the first time, I warmly welcome you. It really is a treat for me to be able to engage you on all of those important aspects of our Christian faith. And if you have been listening to this radio program or podcast now for months and years, I just continue to welcome you and thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule, especially those who are outside of the state of California and outside the country, uh, to see you on the grid listening to the radio program, listening to Seeds of Truth really is a joy for me, and it does certainly convict me to spend time, just not with your questions, but with sacred scripture, you know, to be able to have something to offer you. You send me your questions, and it tells me that you're thinking critically about some of the things we are talking about, and that really is an encouragement for me to continue to plug along. And uh, maybe that's not the best phrase, because in the end, it really is a joy. It's more than just plugging along. It's, uh, it's a gift. It's a joy. So thank you again for taking time out of your busy schedules. Now, as it relates to your question, what is the actual meaning of the gospel? And this is an interesting question because you know that I love to get into what a word means. So when you ask me a question, <laughs> Joe, what does this word actually mean? You, you know you are close to my heart. So thank you for this question. And again, to answer this question will have us going back into the heart of sacred scripture and what I would like to start off with is a passage from Mark chapter 1, verses 14 to 15. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. We also read in Matthew chapter 4, uh, verse 23 as well as chapter 9, verse 35. He went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every infirmity among the people. Now, what I want to do is bring your attention to Pope Benedict XVI's work, Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI, right? His work, Jesus of Nazareth, Volume 1, because there he reflects into what the word gospel means. And to get our evening kick-started here, I thought we could read from Benedict to really help us best respond to your question. He says this, 
The term has recently been translated as good news. And again, we're talking about the Greek here, evangelion, right? Evangelion. The term has recently been translated as good news. That sounds attractive, but it falls short, far short of the order of magnitude of what is actually meant by the word evangelion. He uses the word actually there, so here we go, responding to your very specific question. This term figures in the vocabulary of the Roman emperors, who understood themselves as lords, saviors, and even redeemers of the world. Now, this is so important, my friends, because what Benedict XVI is getting into here is that historical sense of sacred scripture. If we are going to interpret sacred scripture as we ought to interpret sacred scripture, we always have to get into the historical context, the, the cultural milieu, if you will, so as to appreciate who the evangelist is writing to, or if it is Paul, who Paul is writing to. Because then, in that historical context, you can begin to appreciate the value of some of these words that the great evangelists use. So Benedict continues, The messages issued by the emperor were called, in Latin, evangelium, regardless of whether or not their content was particularly cheerful and pleasant. The idea was that what comes from the emperor is a saving message, that it is not just a piece of news, but a change of the world for the better. When the evangelists adopt this word, and it thereby becomes the generic name for their writings, what they mean to tell us is this. What the emperors who pretend to be gods illegitimately claim really occurs here. A message endowed with plenary authority. A message that is just not talk, but reality. In the vocabulary of the contemporary linguistic theory, we would say that the, the gospel is not just informative speech, but performative speech. Not just the imparting of information, but action, efficacious power that enters into the world to save and transform. Benedict concludes here, Mark speaks of the gospel of God, the point being that it is not the emperors who can save the world, but it is God. And it is here that God's word, which is at once word indeed, appears. It is here that what the emperors merely assert but cannot actually perform, truly takes place. For it is the real Lord of the world, the living God, who goes into action. Who goes into action. So there you have it, the Evangelion. Just not good news, right? But a saving message. And a message that actually transforms. Now, let's keep this in mind as we engage a very important passage. Luke chapter 22, verses 19 and following. This is Jesus instituting the Eucharist in the upper room. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after supper, saying, This cup is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood the new covenant in my blood. Brothers and sisters, why do I talk about the Eucharist as it relates to the gospel? Well, what did we just say? A piece of good news 
Yes, but so much more. A saving message, yes, but also a transforming message. Brothers and sisters, the good news is that he has, yes, ransomed us from sin, but that he also calls us to share in his very life and love in the Eucharist. This is the good news. Now, I read to you Luke chapter 22, verses 19 and 20, because there is a jewel there for us. There, Jesus says, this is the blood of the new covenant. Do this in remembrance of me. I've spoken to this recently, actually. It's really interesting. Jesus never commands the evangelists to write this, but no, do this, teach this, right? What do the apostles do? What do the evangelists do? Well, they follow his command. They did what Jesus told them to do which of course is celebrate the Eucharist. This is what we read in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 and following. Now, what's really interesting here is what is going on in the text. We read this is the blood of the new covenant, and that is its original phrase. Now, in some translations, you will get the word testament for covenant. And here you could probably ask the question, why testament and not covenant? Just not here, but really also for the Old and New Testament. So what's going on here? Well, the distinction appears only in Western translations, which of course have been influenced by the Old Latin Vulgate, seeking an equivalent to the Hebrew berith and the Greek diatheke, which of course are the respective words that mean covenant. Latin speakers found nothing exact and settled on the Latin word testamentum, which is a word that um, was tied to covenant bequests, right? Testamentum. So you don't have the Old Covenant, New Covenant, you have the Old Testament and New Testament as we understand it today. Now, I speak to all of this, my friends, because when Jesus says, this is the blood of the New Covenant, he's saying, this is the blood of the New Testament, This is the saving message. This is the transformative message. So what you find in the first Christian preachers and church fathers are references to the New Testament as Christ's sacrifice. In point of fact, St. Irenaeus, Bishop of Lyon, France, and St. Clement of Alexandria said it plainly that the Eucharist is the New Testament. So what the first Christians knew as the New Testament my friends, was not a book, but the Eucharist. For this is what Christ was saying in the upper room. What I am instituting is the New Testament. Do this in remembrance of me. Essentially, my friends, the original use of the phrase New Testament wasn't a text per se as we understand it today. This is just historical fact. It was a sacrament, the sacrament of of the Eucharist. And why? Because in the sacrament of the Eucharist does man become one with God, literally. If the good news is about Jesus Christ and his saving message and this invitation he gives to us to be in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, does it get any more personal than the Eucharist? I could never say it enough. This is the good news. This is the transforming message. This is the center of 
all good theology because this is what Christ reveals. Okay, now let us go back to the context of Mark chapter 1 verses 14 to 15. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. Repent and believe in the gospel. So what does the word repentance mean? Well, the Greek word for repentance is metanoia, which literally translates as a change of mind. The Greek meta and metanoia signifies change, change. So repentance involves more than just, say, being sorry for your sin or a particular sorrow but an actual move or an actual step in the right direction. In other words, my friends, repentance involves both contrition of our sin and resolution to change, huh? It is a new way of thinking which leads to a whole new direction of life. And not one in the abstract, but one in the concrete. In genuine repentance, we're now walking with Christ in our new way of life. And in this metanoia, in this repentance, ultimately is what unlocks all the blessings, the healings, the mercy, and the salvation that is promised. My friends, we must allow the grace of God to effect real change. A decision in our life that changes the way we think, the way we act, and puts us into a saving relationship with the divine physician, that is, of course, Jesus. We must encounter the mercy of God, the mercy of Christ, and allow his appeal that we read in sacred scripture, his appeal to the adulterous woman, and sin no more, (laughs) to invade our own souls through and through. So, metanoia, a very real change on the heels of a very real encounter with Christ. Have you ever met someone for the first time and they had such an impact upon you that they made you think differently about maybe something specific in your life or maybe some aspect of your larger vocation that you actually are acting differently? So you no longer think a new way, but because that encounter impacted you so dramatically, you're now acting in a new way. I've had a few of those encounters. I've had a few of those encounters. I've been in the presence of some very, very holy priests and some holy men and women, and they forever changed my life, forever changed my life. I I remember the first time I was in the presence of one Father Michael Scanlon. Uh, God rest his soul. I'm sure he's in heaven, the former president of Franciscan University of Steubenville. I had the honor to have his company on a number of occasions and to pray with him privately. And I felt (laughs) more holy just being around the guy, you know? He was just one of those very holy people, a man who was so devoted to Jesus Christ and serving Jesus Christ. He made me think differently, and consequently, I was acting differently. He convicted me to pray more, and consequently, I found myself, by the grace of God, serving God more. Hopefully, we have had those encounters. Now, all of that being said, my hope is that (laughs) you can include Jesus Christ in one of those encounters. 
Because if you can, well then, my dear brothers and sisters in Christ, we are well on our way. All right, so in this message of repentance and this call we have to sin no more, really ought to have us thinking more about what sin is. You know, what does it say or mean to say sin no more? Oh, what is sin? The Catechism defines sin as an offense against reason, truth, and right conscience. Um, In the end, as the Catechism puts it, a failure to love God. And really, this is what sin is about. Simply put, sin is disobedience. Sin is breaking our Father's heart. Sin is to miss the mark. That's the Greek that St. Paul employs. So the hamartia, which is the Greek for missing the mark for sin, ultimately is no longer living in the law of God, living in the heart of God, okay? Now, one of the problems that arises, certainly in some circles today, is that we dismiss sin altogether. Worse yet, we preach the gospel of mercy without repentance. And to do so, my friends, is silly. To preach the gospel of mercy without repentance, to preach mercy without reference to our sinful condition is silly. When pulpits go silent on sin, they go silent on the glory, the true glory of mercy and the astonishing and overwhelming gift of the greatness of God's love. Oh, how glorious is God's divine mercy when we step into the shoes of the prodigal son and like the prodigal son, come to our senses. We who are sinners and always, always in need of God's mercy. To speak of sin is never unmerciful and mean. To the contrary, it is merciful and necessary. In the end, my friends, to preach the gospel is to preach for conversion because we are all in need of conversion. We are always in need of being renewed in Christ, being renewed in his saving and transforming message of love, a sacrificial message that, as I have already spoken to it, is one that we are called to share in. Now, what about this phrase, the kingdom of God? Interestingly enough, Benedict XVI speaks to this very phrase in that same chapter, and he notes here in that same chapter, the phrase kingdom of God is used in the New Testament 122 times. And often it is put in the context of the gospel of God, right? The saving message, the good news. So what does uh, Jesus intend to mean when he is talking about the kingdom of God? Well, really, when you take a closer look at the kingdom of God, as the church fathers did, in particular, the church father Origen, what comes to the surface is three different modes of how we are called to understand the kingdom of God. The first is Christological, the second is mystical, and the third is regal. Now, if you're listening to this radio program and you're saying to yourself right now, what, what, and what? <laughs> let's, let's break this down. The first dimension is, again, the Christological one. And the word, my friends, Christological simply means the study of Christ, right? Ologies, the study of Christological is the study of Christ. So the first dimension of the kingdom of God is the study of Christ. That is, as Origen would put it, 
basing himself on the actual reading of Jesus's words, Jesus himself is the kingdom of God, that the kingdom of God has come down in person. As Benedict XVI reflects, the kingdom is not a thing. It is not a geographical dominion like worldly kingdoms. It is a person. It is he. And on this interpretation, the term kingdom of God is itself what we can call a veiled Christology. So by the way in which Jesus himself speaks to the kingdom of God, my friends, Jesus himself leads men to realize the overwhelming fact that in him, in him, in Jesus, God himself is present among them, that he is God's presence. Now, there is a second way of looking at the significance of the kingdom of God, and this is what we call the mystical interpretation. It sees man's whole interior life as the essential location of the kingdom of God. And really, the first dimension, that is the Christological one, very much forms and informs the second dimension, that which is mystical. Because that word mystical simply means to enter into the mystery of Christ, right? And the mystery of the love shared between the Father and the Son. You cannot do that without a very real personal relationship with Jesus Christ. So you have a very unique relationship between our understanding of the kingdom of God as Jesus, okay, and then also this second dimension where man's whole interior life is the essential location of the kingdom of God. Let Jesus reign in your hearts. Uh, Origen in his treatise on prayer, says, Those who pray for the coming of the kingdom of God pray without any doubt for the kingdom of God that they contain in themselves, and they pray that this kingdom might bear fruit and attain its fullness. For in every holy man it is God who reigns, exercises dominion. So if we want God to reign in us, then sin must not allowed in any way to reign in our mortal bodies. Isn't that beautiful? Here we are talking about the kingdom of God in the interior life, and one of the great church fathers, Origen, reflecting into the kingdom of God, speaks beautifully to what we were just talking about. We cannot have the kingdom of God reigning in our hearts if we are leading a life of sin. We have to adhere to our Lord's words, sin no more. Okay, what about this third dimension of the interpretation of the kingdom of God? We call this regal, or we can also call it ecclesiastical. That is, the kingdom of God and the church are related in different ways and brought into more or less close proximity. Uh, We speak to the church as the kingdom of God here on earth, as the church in her sacramental identity draws us into the very life and love of Christ. I spoke to that word regal earlier. There is a regality to it, right? As the church is the kingdom of God here on earth, reigning here on earth, she does so also in the capacity of authority. Authority as not some tyrant, no, as a loving parent, reaching out to us, showing us the right way and the wrong way in her sacred tradition 
okay? So there you have an ever so brief reflection into how we might think of the kingdom of God and how we might think of the kingdom of God within the context of the good news, right? The saving message, the transforming message. To be in an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ is to understand, brothers and sisters in Christ, is to understand that we are to allow God to reign in our hearts. Indeed, then, in a life of prayer and abiding in the sacramental life of the church, will we come to understand that this saving message, this transforming message, is an extraordinary message of merciful love, of merciful love. Amen? Amen. All right, I'm looking up at the clock, and we are out of time. I I had one other thought to share with you about um, the church as it relates to our discussion this evening, but I think we have more or less responded to the question, what does it actually mean? What does the word gospel actually mean? Uh, Just not good news, but a very real saving, transforming message that is efficacious in its power. What does that word efficacious mean? I know I've thrown that word out a few times. Efficacious is a word that simply means effective, right? Um, We are endowed with God's grace, and God's grace has an impact upon our very life, has an impact upon how we think and how we act, right? It is efficacious. Brothers and sisters, when God's grace invades our souls through and through, it spills over into everything that we do. And this is what I mean by efficacious. And with that, let us close with a word of prayer. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.